Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. 
check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of July, St. Evans is supporting For the Quarrels, a Black trans-led collective that fundraises to help Black transgender people pay for rent, gender-affirming services, other medical expenses, and the associated travel costs. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. 
Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Welcome to Close Force, the podcast. This is so annoying, but this is the podcast that can't buy anything on Poshmark until I find my passport, which I can't find because I haven't traveled in so long. And also, my driver's license shows my old address. And it's super annoying because after buying and selling on Poshmark for years now, I can't do anything until I send them a photo of my passport, which is a little creepy to be fair, and I don't know where it is. So yeah, that's a whole other problem, and I'm sure you're already getting bored with this, so let's just move along here. (laughs) I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 89. Today, you're going to be hearing the second half of my conversation with Jade of Fashion Without Trashin, and... We're talking about some really hot stuff. We're going to be talking about the less than savory, less than ethical aspects of some of the largest thrift chains here in the United States. We're going to talk about our distrust of ThreadUp. And, you know, we're just going to talk all things secondhand. Before we jump into all of that, I just want to take a moment to tell you that the Etsy sewed, as in an episode about Etsy. I think it's clever. So there you go. The Etsy sode is coming soon. And it's going to be our first episode of August, which is so close right now. We're going to be talking about the history of the company, its impact on small makers and sellers all over the world, and so much more. I know based on conversations I've had, things I've seen, you know, on social media, that the seller experience on Etsy has changed so much over the last few years. And I want to hear your stories for the episode. What works for you? What doesn't work? Have you left Etsy? Where are you selling now? Have you thought about leaving, but you're too nervous because you're worried it will affect your sales? How do you feel about Etsy buying Depop? Do you have any hilarious or weird Etsy stories? I want to hear it all. So send them my way. And also, please holler at your friends who you think might be interested in joining the conversation, too. Honestly, your stories are going to help me round out my research and make sure I cover everything. It's such a massive topic that I'm almost like, oh, my gosh, are we going to have to do like a two-parter of this? We'll see. You're probably wondering how you can reach me. Well, you can... You can engage in the super old-fashioned way. No, not actual paper mail, but email, and that's at amanda at closehorse.world. You can call the Close Horse Hotline, which is 717-925-7417. Just as a reminder, you'll have about two or three minutes to leave a message. Keep calling back until you say everything you want to say, and I'll edit it all together. I do it all the time. I'm a total pro. Or you can record a voice memo on your phone or computer and email it to me. The hotline number and my email address, all that stuff are going to be in the show notes as usual. So please send me your stories, your experiences, your opinions, 
This can be as anonymous as you want it to be. Just tell me that you want it to be anonymous or not. Also, please note that all audio messages will be edited to make you sound as brilliant as possible. So don't be stressed if you say um or lose your train of thought. Just keep going. I will snazz it all up. Please send your stories to me by Wednesday, July 28th. That's only a couple days awake at this point, but I need that time to write the episode. And I'm just thanking you all in advance because I've already received some good stories and I know there are way more to come. I'm going to jump right into my conversation with Jade because like the last episode, I have a ton of information for you after the conversation because it all relates to things we talk about. So I'm going to be telling you all kinds of stuff about thrift stores and thread up, like so much information. And, and I have to say, I'm really excited about it. I love when I have an idea or a question and I go deep deep into the internet to find the answer. Uh, I hope you enjoy that as much as I do. So I have tons of that stuff for you after the conversation. So let's go. Well, so that's a good transition into the next thing I want to talk yeah. about because you and I, when we were preparing for this, we started going off about Goodwill <laughs> and <laughs> You used to partner with Goodwill for Sustainable Gift Exchange, right? Right. Yeah. Why did you end your partnership with them? So when I was working with Goodwill for the Sustainable Gift Exchange, it was really interesting the way they operated. They really wanted to work with influencers, right? And they really wanted to sort of like gain some more exposure, it seemed like. So I was like, well, great. This is what I'm doing, you know. I'm looking for, I'm going to purchase everything from you. I'm not asking for anything for free or anything like that. Um, I wanted to purchase these gifts, but I asked them instead of, you know, having to go through everything like out on the floor or whatever, it would make it a lot easier if I had access to some of their excess inventory in order to be able to go through it to pull the gifts for the gift exchange. Um, and then they would bring me up. I'd purchase everything, of course. And being there and being in a lot of these back rooms, I got to speak to a lot of people that work there. And, you know, I, there were some things that were really disheartening about it um, on many levels from things being thrown away, like actually thrown away for garbage that were perfectly usable condition, like absolutely nothing oh, wrong with them. No doubt. Including things no like doubt. antiques. And glass, anything glass, they were just like, I'm like, oh my gosh. I was like freaking out. Like, why are we, why are we throwing this away? Like I even have sitting here next to me on my desk, this um, like Victorian bird cage situation that was being thrown away with like this bird inside. You can like wind it up and it talks. I think it's from Germany. And well, sorry, it doesn't talk. It like, you know, makes bird noises. Why am I forgetting what birds, (laughs) noise birds make? I don't know. (laughs) Squeaking or something. I can't even say squeaking. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, it makes bird sounds and it's really beautiful. And I was like, no, don't throw this away. Like I took it out of their trash. And then they they were like, well, you have to pay for it. And I was like, all right, fine, I'll buy it. But like you're throwing it away. (laughs) And so that was like part of the mentality I realized that they had, that they would rather throw something away than give it away. If they thought that somebody else came in there and like, thought something they were throwing away had value, then they wanted to be paid for it. And I'm like, but you're literally throwing this away. Like if you would at least allow people to take the things that you weren't able to use instead of just throwing it away, you know, 
there could be like a great reuse there and, and maybe you could even make more money off of it, you know, but just charge discounted amount or something. I don't know. You know, I feel like there are solutions mm-hmm. there that weren't being grasped. Um, another thing I noticed was just that they overwhelmingly have this sense that everybody's stealing. <laughs> yes. And it's just yes. icky. Like every employee, yeah. everybody yeah. that's partnering with them. And don't get me wrong. Did I see theft happen? Yes, I did. I didn't see it happen from the employees, but I saw it happen from influencers. Influencers who <laughs> they gave, you know, the ability to go in the back room and pick out what they wanted and pick out things for these events and stuff. And then the influencers would just be stuffing stuff in a bag and they'd look at me and be like, oh, that's my stuff there. And I'm like, excuse me? Awesome. <laughs> Why are you telling me? And, and no, thank you. I don't want this information. And also just buy it. Like it's it's a charity. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's there's definitely a disconnect there because everyone I know who's worked at the Goodwill will tell you that the rules are so strict mm-hmm. about when they can purchase things. And there is this overwhelming air of like, we have to prevent all of you from stealing. Yes. And the other part of this is that like they pay terribly. Absolutely. And speaking of their employees, there was this situation where they were closing down one of their stores and one of the employees was really concerned that they basically weren't going to have a job anymore. And I was like, well, what's going on? They're like, well, they're offering me a position at this certain store that's further away. However, I can't travel that far because then I'd have to take public transportation. Whereas I guess they were walking to work at this point where they were working at. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, um, you know, why can't you take public transportation? Is there like a reason why? And they were just like, well, it's just too expensive. Like, you know, based on what I'm getting paid and like, you know, everything is, it's too pricey for me. I was like, okay, that's understandable. And I thought, oh, I really, I mean, maybe this was just so arrogant of me, but I thought I'm going to go talk to the manager about this, let them know like this type of situation and get this woman a monthly Metro card so that if she needs to work at this other store, that, that, that it'll be fine for her. And I go to them and I tell them, I'm like, oh yeah, she's, you know, not going to be able to work, blah, 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 whatever. And they're like, well, yeah, that's not really our problem. I'm like, what? I was like, can't you just get her a Metro card? <laughs> like a monthly Metro card or whatever. And they're like, well, we don't really do, we don't do that here. I'm like, hold on. I thought that's like literally what you do do though, is like help people maintain their jobs and to give them more skills through job work programs and help people who are disabled or like is a hundred dollars a month. Like that's really gonna, you're going to let this woman not have a job because of that even though you're already paying her minimum wage. <laughs> like, I'm so confused. Like, what? <laughs> and she was physically disabled. So I was, like, extra <laughs> pissed off. I was like, okay, yeah. you guys suck yeah. for that. Yeah, it's – I mean, I have a close uh, a close person in my life who works at Goodwill right now. I'm not going to name them. And they were telling me, like, you know – 90% of our staff is neuroatypical. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people who are on the autism spectrum or who have other cognitive issues. And they're not being paid the full minimum wage of the other employees. So they're already getting a lot of work out of people for significantly less. 
And it it feels like an exploitation to me almost. Like it, it's like it we need people to work. We don't want to spend that money much money on it. Let's bring in a bunch of people who we can legally pay less than minimum wage and we'll save tons of money. But you know what what are they saving the money for? Like that's that's the whole thing is like they're a nonprofit. I well right, that's what I'm what saying. The money for, right? It's, well, I know, yeah, for bonuses for their their C suites. Which seems exactly. to still happen even in years that they claim a deficit. Yeah. Tell me yeah. how that makes any sense, how they will take money from the programs before they will take money from the bonuses for the C-suite. I'm sorry. That does not make any freaking sense to me. Well, and the other thing that confuses me, I did a bunch of research this uh, into this for an episode earlier this year. They – for a lot of their job programs, they actually receive government subsidies. So – I don't understand how an organization can take government money, can sell donated products, and pay executive bonuses. <laughs> it's it it just seems counterintuitive to me. You know, like you're running this like it's a corporation. Mm-hmm. Yes, hundred percent. Taking everything you sell is free, right? I mean, I know they buy like overstock and stuff from Target, but like for the most part. Most of their inventory, they got for free, right? Yes, yeah. And then on top of that, they take government money for these job programs that the sales are supposed to be funding. There shouldn't be executive bonuses. No, I mean, like, it's just- I, I always find the like nonprofit sector to be really interesting when it comes to that. Like, well, I don't, I don't know why. I always kind of thought that people who went into nonprofit were like more altruistic or something, but I just don't think that that's actually what the case is always. And I was just always in my head thinking that it was the case, you know? And a lot of times people ask me, especially now with the shop, they'll be like, oh, are you a nonprofit? Are you a nonprofit? Because it's a thrift store. Are you a nonprofit? I'm like, no, I'm not a nonprofit. They're like, oh, well, I wouldn't donate here. I'm like, what? I literally make $15 and 50 cents an hour. That's what I pay myself as the CEO. You're not going (laughs) to like, you're not going to find a nonprofit who pays their CEO less than I do. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And uh, spoiler, uh, most thrift stores are for profit. Right. Um, Not, you know, Salvation Army and not technically Goodwill. Correct. Um, Out here where I live, we have like a whole bunch of these like Mennonite women-ran thrift stores that are also nonprofit and fund all these charitable programs. But like Value Village and Savers are a for-profit company. Yep. Yeah. And there are tons of other ones too. Yeah. And it's just this misconception that they are nonprofits. And I've had that talk with people as well where there's where I say like that exactly that like the well you know that they're not a nonprofit or whatever they're like yeah but they give money back to the girls and boys club and I'm like yeah well last year I gave like forty thousand dollars back to Goodwill by purchasing product from them so like it's the exact same thing (laughs) like does money go to the boys and girls club from collecting that stuff a certain percentage yes or or whatever does a certain percentage of my money go back to a nonprofit because I'm choosing to use them for some of my sourcing. Yes. In the research that I've done, like if you talk about, say, how much money Value Village was giving to Girls and Boys Club, research indicated that they were giving three cents for every $100 of revenue. Not even three cents per dollar. Yeah. What a scam. 
And these places like Value Village and some of the other for-profit thrift stores who give a portion back to like veterans or whatever, they will often find these charities to partner with. So maybe they'll say, okay, we're partnering with ARC, right? Mm -hmm. ARC's one of our partners. ARC is required to drive a certain volume of donations their way every year or they don't get anything. What? And – there are all of these items and categories of product that don't count towards meeting that goal. So right, like, for books. example, furniture doesn't count. Yeah, yeah or books, yeah. right? That's another great one. Right. So you can donate your sofa to Value Village ostensibly because it's giving money back to ARC. Um, Value Village is going to sell that couch, but that doesn't count towards ARC meeting their quota. That's and so that's weird. that's not clear either. I know. I know. It's so sketchy. There's been so many lawsuits around it. But, you know, what I tell people is, like, don't go thrifting because you think you're donating money to charity. If you want to support causes, write a check, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you want to save the planet, you know, have a more sustainable lifestyle, thrift. go thrifting. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Like, that's the reason to do it. Just buy secondhand, period. Yeah. Buy secondhand. Whether it's at the thrift store or if it's through an online seller or or if it's vintage, whatever it may be, buying secondhand, period, is going to be the most sustainable. And, you know, unless it's your own clothing or something you get from a friend. Well, so something you said to me was that you tell people that rather than donating their unwanted clothing, they should give it to someone to, to resell. Yeah, if they know a reseller. And I mean, I'm not going to have data on this because, you know, I don't have money to run, (laughs) you know, (laughs) massive data mining campaigns. But, you know, having worked in this industry for 20 years, being behind the scenes at at least five donation-based charities, thrift stores, I've been behind the scenes at at least – four or five um, clothing recycling centers, which are not nonprofits. Um, Most of the stuff that you are donating will not end up in the thrift store or being reused like, or, or especially being reused in the United States in any way, shape or form. Oh yeah. Like seriously, a very small percentage Mm -hmm. of what you donate is ever worn by another person in the United right. States, if and it's, it's ever worn at all. And the chances of your donated item being reused go down exponentially if it's not a good brand, right? If it's not something that has quality and weight to it, if it has any defect to it whatsoever, a stain, a hole, a pole, um, just literally anything. That it just keeps cutting it down from the chances of it being reused. Whereas if you were to give it over to somebody who is a small reseller, I'm telling you, these these people are not making so much money or like profiting like these crazy amounts. I think people think that they're making so much money, but they're really making modest livings, just manually recycling clothing. And that means doing the work for the clothing that goes beyond what thrift stores are going to do or are willing to do, right? cleaning, washing things, repairing things, steaming, you know, photographing, putting it online, dealing with customers, all of that, right? All of that stuff exponentially increases its chances of being reused. So if you're donating because you want your stuff to be reused, I genuinely believe that if you were to give it to somebody who resells even just casually online, it has has to have an exponentially higher chance 
of actually getting back into being reused than if you're just donating it to the thrift store. And if you want to still have that cause supported, then speak to a reseller who is willing to pay for the product from you then. They'll give you a couple bucks an item or whatever it is that they would take, right? That they normally would have taken at the thrift store and paid at the thrift store. Ask them to donate that amount to the thrift store. Right, right. Or to a charity of your choice. Right, exactly. Because that can still be a part of it. Yeah, I think that 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 is so smart because ultimately the volume of stuff coming into these donation bins is unmanageable. And – we, mm-hmm. and when I say we, I mean the global we, not you and me, are a part mm-hmm. of that problem. Like I can't tell you how many times – I live pretty close to a Goodwill and it seems like if they're ever closed for a holiday or something or like during the pandemic, this was really extreme when they didn't have full-time sorting yes. hours. You know where I'm going to go with this. The bins outside oh, yes. were overflowing and people were just ditching bags and piles of stuff outside yep. where it sat in the rain. And it was like instant yep. garbage. It went from being things that were useful probably to being instant yep. garbage. And so the Goodwill sorts out anything that's wet or smells or Absolutely. is damaged. Yes, they yeah, do. Because they, they can. They have enough inventory to sell. And they also don't want to put – for as terrible as they are to their employees, they also don't want them to put them at like a health risk because then they could get sued. You know? Of course. Of course. Ugh. And – and I mean, and that makes complete sense. And then, you know, I think that I actually saw a TikTok of somebody who went to the Goodwill during the pandemic and the, the Goodwill's completely shut down. And so like the donations were just piling up outside and like you said, getting destroyed. And so they went there and started taking things to like save it, resell it, do something with it during the pandemic. And they got absolutely torn to shreds for it. And it's this mentality, I think that is just so created by maybe like middle and upper class that like it's stealing in order to take that stuff when the reality is, is like leaving it there. It's just trash. Yeah. Like it's really, it's, it is a gray area, but I think like during the pandemic, you know, I wouldn't obviously encourage anybody to go and take anything from, you know, Goodwill's bins if Goodwill is open or anything like that. But when it does come down to there being a pandemic, the place is completely closed and everything's just being left outside. I think that at that point, being upset with people for going over there, taking that stuff, saving it, and trying to make some income during a pandemic, I mean, it's so cruel to think that they're bad people or doing something wrong. No, they're doing something good, actually, because also that stuff's going to sit out in the rain and the snow and whatever else, and eventually the Goodwill is going to reopen, and someone who works there who's getting paid minimum wage or less is going to have to go out there and clean all that up. So it's a good deed <laughs> yeah. in so many ways. You know, last weekend uh, we went camping. We went on like a road trip to upstate New York. And at one point we pu- we pulled oh, into like a shopping center. We were in our RV. We pulled into a shopping center so that we could mm-hmm. like feed the cat because, yes, we had a cat with us and do some other stuff. <laughs> and we parked right by some of those donation bins for one of those like for-profit uh, clothing recycling companies. They're not donation mm-hmm. bins. We know that. Um, no. But right. the I don't even know the last time those bins had been empty, but they were bursting at the seams and surrounded by mountains of bags. And I was like, well, yep. all that stuff's garbage now. Like, it rained the day yep. before, you know? And there's so much stuff. 
And on our end, we're being irresponsible with it too. Like maybe today's not the day you Marie Kondo your closet because the Goodwill's closed for a pandemic or it's raining outside or, you know, like, or maybe don't put clothes that have blood on them in the back, you know, like. Oh my gosh. You know, like just like think it through. That's like one hot tip I could give people (laughs) if – if you care about your, you know saving clothes and getting clothes reused, wear underwear. <laughs> you heard it here like, first. I cannot tell you how many things will never, ever, ever be used again because of you know. <laughs> I, I mean, no, like a, a cute word to use for it, but yeah, you know, like stuff, some crumbs yeah. being left <laughs> yes. in the pants, and. The, you know, Goodwill, any any thrift store is going to open that up, look at it, and be like, goodbye. Straight to the trash. Garbage. Yeah, that stuff's gone. That's a really great point that, like, if you want to make your clothes last, if you want to give them a second life after <laughs> you, wear some underwear. It's kind of like a super easy, sustainable tip. Yeah, you know? Like, nobody ever says it because it seems so, like, icky. But, you know, I mean, listen, I'm not – disgusted by it or afraid of it. I've been doing this so long. I've seen it so often, but I'm telling you, even people who are thrifting at the thrift shop to resell things, they're going to take one look at that and be like, nope, and keep it moving. So many of them will. So then that item is just going to go to the trash eventually one way or another. Mm -hmm. So like if it had just been washed beforehand or if there, if you, it wasn't washed, but had been wearing underwear, you know, that item again, its chances of being reused would go way up. Oh, yeah. And to be clear, even if – okay, let's say it doesn't sell at the thrift store because everybody looks at the inside (laughs) of the pants and is grossed Mm -hmm. out. When it goes and gets bailed up and sent overseas, it's not going to get worn there either. Like no one wants your dirty crotch pants. (laughs) (laughs) No one wants them. Uh, You know, it's like none of us mind our own dirty crotch pants – but we don't want someone else's. It's just human nature. But I also think a lot of people have this like idea that when it's sent overseas, that it's oh, it's getting reused again by the you know mythical poor person, right? Oh well, it helps poor people in other countries. And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, why do you think everybody's oh my poor? God. I know. First of all, yeah. Ugh. And why do you think that being poor means that you no longer have standards or a sense of style or care about a clean crotch in your <laughs> pants or any of that stuff? Like. Poor people, these mythical poor people, well, guess what? They're the same as all of us. It's me. A lot of us are poor people and might not realize it, for one. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, like, you know what? I I come from a poor family. I grew up in a trailer park, and none of us wanted to wear someone's dirty crotch pants, okay? Or T-shirt from their bachelorette party. (laughs) No, yeah. We wanted to look nice and feel good, too. You wanted to blend (laughs) in and assimilate. That is what I wanted when I was a kid, right? When I went to the thrift store, I wanted to look for items that looked like the items that other kids were wearing. Even if it wasn't the same brands, the brands didn't matter to me. It was just the style of or, you know, Mm -hmm. or just that it was freaking clean, you know? Not things with with stains yeah. and holes because then you would just be made fun of for that, for being the dirty kid who smelled and also had stains all over their clothes. So, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. doubling down there. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, it was just about having something clean that fit me um, and that looked, you know, somewhat normal <laughs> so that I could fit in with the other kids. It, Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, like 
poor people, I, I hate even using that I know, term. right? It's so it's, weird. It's so, um, <laughs> it's but gross. these imaginary poor people that live in the imaginations of so many mm-hmm. people, um, they actually do have pride about what they wear and a sense of like and dislike. And they don't want your pilly Fashion Nova bodycon dress that is already pulling apart at the seams. And they don't want that T-shirt from your fun run. (laughs) Nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. And unfortunately, this is a lot of the stuff that ends up over there. Nobody wants your costume that you bought at Halloween Adventure or Spirit of Halloween, whatever it's called, that's like sexy strawberry shortcake or whatever because it's like already shredded (laughs) and you wore it one time and it smells like beer. Like nobody wants it, okay? Like either make it work for you or (laughs) maybe. It depends. depends. (laughs) I was reading that like a lot of these like crappy Halloween costumes end up in Africa yeah, where they go to the landfill and like blow around and stuff. Um, yeah. yeah, so um, much. So, you know, when when helping out in the background of these recycling centers, as they call themselves, um, <laughs> I know it's so stupid because no recycling actually happens. Um, they, you know, they go around and collect from the bins or they have like drop-off centers where you can like drop off stuff to them. And the stuff literally just all gets piled together, picked up from one spot, transported to another and like that's it. I'm like, I feel like these companies are calling themselves recycling centers, but they are actually just like transportation like companies because they pick up and drop off and then they sell it off to another buyer, right? Generally it's like this sometimes it's a sorting facility. Um, and sometimes it's just all bailed up and immediately ship it's just an exporter, and the exporter just ships mm-hmm. it overseas immediately. So everything gets shipped over there like and i can tell you that some of the most frustrating things about it are that when they bail up these clothes like these clothing bales and it's just like all raw donations that they call credential they the heels you can hear them snapping (laughs) it's like (laughs) it's it's like bones um it's like uh all of those are trash now and then they all just get sent Um, overseas All of the bags Ugh. that you donate stuff in, all of the plastic, all of the random whatever, all get sent overseas. Like it doesn't get picked God, out. That is disgusting. <laughs> yeah, so it's literally just That's all garbage. That's disgusting because because also someone's going to throw like a wet washcloth in there. Oh, they hundred percent. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. There's, a, I mean, Ugh. yes, people especially with those like types of bins and stuff. I mean, they will throw anything in there. Garbage, okay, full I, bags of garbage, rotting, rotting stuff. I saw one once with a, a Wendy's bag sticking Aww. out of it. Now you know that there was not Aww. any clothing in that Wendy's bag. So, so such a bummer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've found, I know, I've found I know. the craziest things. Just, and it's, yeah, it's so sad. So these clothing recycling facilities, which you're right, they totally need a rebrand mm-hmm. because I think. You know, and this is something I've talked about with other people in the past. Like when we look at places like, say, H&M who take back clothing and give you a discount and are supposedly recycling it, or we hear the term clothing recycling, we imagine much like, say, our aluminum cans that they all get bunched up and they go in one end of the machine. And when they come mm-hmm. out on the, on the other end, a bolt of fabric comes out or something, right? Yeah, could, or a whole bunch of leggings. Could not I don't be know. further from the truth. Yeah. <laughs> like it's like – just garbage 
the, the compression. The only, basically. you know, the only true ways of actually recycling clothing are either reselling it and getting it reused again, because just like you can, you know, take a glass bottle, it can be cleaned and sanitized and reused again as the same glass bottle. It's similar to that, mm-hmm. right? So you can recycle it that way. Or or you have to pick out certain fabrics that can be recycled. And what the only fabrics that can be recycled at this point are like 100% cotton, uh, like 100% linen, you know, natural fibers, only natural. So any of the other stuff, it's it's not even being recycled because it's extremely difficult to do. It has to all be the same as well. If you're going to take it to a facility that actually recycles fiber and does fiber recycling, and even then, no, all this stuff doesn't just then get turned into new fabric together. Like it has to be broken down. It has to be chemically washed, which means that we're adding more chemicals and things into the environment. Um, and then it can't be, as far as I know, at this point, it still can't be 100% reused fi- fibers because it's not strong enough. Because once you like break mm-hmm. it down again, right, it just doesn't ever quite form all the way the same. So it's like 80% new fiber with, mixed in with 20% of the recycled fibers. And it's very, very, very expensive. Very expensive. And you have to come with like 10,000 pounds of sorted product. Mm-hmm. None of these, I mean, none that I am aware of quote unquote, clothing, donation, recycling centers, any of that, none of them are doing that. Not a single one. No, H&M's not doing that. (laughs) They sell their stuff to these recycling companies who then bail it up and ship it off to Africa. I mean, I guess they, I know some of the stuff gets sold off for shredding, right? Um, Some of it is sold off to resellers. You know, I know there are a few facilities here in the United States, well, probably more than I know about where Someone is literally sorting all that stuff out for resellers or to sell to other There stores. are a few sorting facilities, yes. But mu- yeah. a lot of those sorting s- facilities are still selling overseas. They just sort the type of product. And so then it goes to different areas um, mm-hmm. because certain countries they only want and they will pay a higher amount to only have certain types of clothing where it's like more lightweight, stretchy fabrics, you know, only flat um, – sandals and sneakers. And so like that is a much more profitable um, mix for them, for them to sell at markets and things like that. So they don't want your J. Crew work dresses. They don't want your J. Crew slacks and stuff because they don't wear them in Central America or, you know, it's not the most common thing that's being requested at their markets, right? Mm-hmm. So they don't want those things. So those things get sorted out. And truth be told, I don't know what happens to those items that aren't wanted from those markets that most of these um, sorters are selling to. That makes me sad because while I'm probably not going to wear someone's J. Crew work clothes, it's not my aesthetic, there are plenty of people who would and would be super stoked actually because oh, yeah. you know what? Office clothes are expensive. Oh, 100%. I mean, I resell them all the time. It makes me sad to imagine them possibly being shredded. Or incinerated. Yeah, you know? I think most of them would end up being shipped probably to Africa um, or Eastern European. Like I, I met with one 
you know, collection recycling clothing center. And they were collecting the clothes here in America, shipping it to an Eastern European country, having it sorted there into tiers of like A, B, C. So whether it's like, you know, the best middle or lowest, and then shipped back to America because it was cheaper for them to do that than to pay people to sort it in America. Oh, (laughs) isn't that one of the frustrating things you can like hear? Because first of all, you, I mean, you've killed the sustainability in it. (laughs) Like, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for carting this halfway across the world and bringing it back. And then when I looked through these packs, because they're paying people probably very minimal, very bad low wages in another country to sort this stuff, they're the, the basis of what their great product is, is just that it doesn't have a hole or a stain. So it's still like Forever 21 and, you know, all of this other stuff is their best product. And they're uh, asking you to pay like $6 a piece for it, $5 a piece. What? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And you're like, I mean, like that's what? just not even sustainable from a business perspective. Right. None of you. that I also makes like, sense to me. Who's? Yeah. Yeah. That's – wow. That makes me so sad to think about um, because that stuff flew halfway across the world and back or went on a ship. But either way, it didn't need to. I think I've – the thing I've gathered most of all is that the textile clothing recycling industry is utterly disappointing. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> it sucks. Um, and not concerned with sustainability. Nope. And that's probably been one of the most disappointing things to work with some people that I, you know, you know, when I, when it first started, the re- like business relationships first started, I was like, oh my gosh, like how great what this person's doing, blah, 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 you know, thinking that they're awesome. And they're, you know, here they are talking to magazines and speaking on panels and talking about sustainability everywhere. And then you work with them and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> Where's the sustainability here? It's it's literally doesn't exist. It's like it's all a farce and just it's extremely disappointing. There doesn't seem to be in that industry like a lot of passion for saving the clothes. It's about how much you can collect and how much money you can get for it. Yep. Yep. It's all by the pound, baby. The more you can get. I w- <laughs> When I've heard it's like a really cutthroat business. I hear terrible stories about the people who have who, you know, are resellers who go to these facilities to get inventory. And I hear terrible stories from people who've had to work in these Mm -hmm. facilities. And it's it's all sad. Yeah, they don't you know, and infuriating. I literally was working in one warehouse where I was sharing this warehouse space and I was paying to be there. And it was it wasn't a very good situation, but I was just like, I need to make this work until I can have enough money to like get out of this position that I'm in right now. And at one point, like the 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 sockets, um, the electrical sockets were like melting if we would put fans in or anything, <gasps> right? Just straight up melting oh and like sparking. And I'm like, hey guy, <laughs> this is happening and this is really bad. Like this needs to be fixed, you need to do something. Well, I'm not the landlord. I'm like, but I pay you, so you need to tell the landlord then. Well, the landlord's not going to care because I haven't paid the rent for six months. 
And I'm just like, (laughs) um, I was like, so what happens if there's like a fire here? And I kid you not, this is a quote. That is what insurance is for. Jeez. I was like, I didn't recall you insuring my life, but okay, thanks. Wow. But that's, but that's what I mean. Like on the level of like not caring and it being literally it being about how much money they can get. Like I've heard them describe their businesses as cash cows. Um, and it's just, you know, oh, we recycle 99% of the stuff that we get in. And this is them in articles, like legitimate articles talking about this, right? And I'm like, hold on a minute. You don't recycle anything. You pick it up and you drop it off to somebody else who then it exports it overseas. Where's the recycling? Yeah, yeah. And well, unfortunately, a side effect of of that scam is that people read that and they're like, oh, so it's like fine for me to keep buying tons of new clothes right. because they're going to get recycled. <laughs> it's a it's a lie. They're not. It's a lie. It's a scam. There still is you know, only I, one way to genuinely recycle a piece of clothing. And that is to have somebody get it back on somebody else's body. Yeah. And cleaning it, repairing it. That doesn't it. happen as often as you no. think. You know? It's a very small percentage of it. Very, very, very small. And that's another reason I get really pissed off about brands being on Poshmark saying so <laughs> stuff. Yes. And like you're confusing, you're com- you're taking away mm-hmm. from this actually like really amazing mission here, which is getting clothes back out there. And you're saying, oh. You don't want that. You want this brand for new for the same thing. price. For the same price, you can have this <laughs> brand new thing. Oh, it's like get out of here, please leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like stop. Exactly. Go, go. You have your own website. Go sell it there. I've actually like I've reached out to um, free people to have a conversation about their product that gets damaged, whether it's like from returns or in the store or you know, in the production process, whatever, and about being able to take on some of that. And I'm like, listen, I will repair it. We will clean it. We will turn it into new things, whatever needs to be done. And it's just like, they don't, they want to resell their own product. They want to do everything, but then work with other people who already have an expertise Uh. in doing this. And it's so frustrating because I'm like, I'm willing to even pay you for your product, your damaged product. So that I can then invest more money because it costs me between eight and twenty dollars, or sometimes more if it's like a specialty thing that's being done to something, just to get something completely cleaned and repaired if it was damaged professionally, right? Like to repair right. a zipper um, and pay fair wages, guys, fair wages to people, it's twenty dollars, you know, and that it's it's got to be an investment back into the product that was damaged and the brands don't want to reinvest in damaged product because you know if they put $20 into an item that they only produced it for $20 for that would make no sense to them <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly well and it's like they want it's like they want to be in second hand right but not not for altruistic reasons like no. they're not like we're concerned about the planet because if they were, they would be changing all these other right. things that they're doing before they even started getting into secondhand. And also, they don't want the competition of someone else being in secondhand with their stuff. Yes. It, they're it's jealous. So, it's weird. They they're are jealous. jealous. They are jealous. 
It's even just like think about how like places like Burberry, they got in trouble a couple years ago for burning millions of dollars worth of inventory because they didn't want it to get into the hands of you know resellers, outlets, because poor people. Yeah, the poor people, right? It quote unquote devalues their product. But you know what makes your product more valuable? Producing less. (laughs) Yeah, producing the right amount. Selling out of it at full price. <laughs> exactly. You know? Not having to keep, not having so much that not only could you not clear it out through all your stores and your website, then you had to go sell it on Poshmark. Oh my gosh. Or burn <laughs> like, it, right? Those are our options. Yeah. We're either yeah, going to burn exactly. this or compete with the secondhand marketplace sellers who are like, already like, majorly, majorly made up of, you know, Young women, um, stay-at-home moms, people with disabilities. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Thanks. Guys. No, instead we'll just burn it. <laughs> I remember reading that Zara was looking into maybe they've already launched it, their own resale thing called oh Rezara. I swear I didn't dream this. I know it sounds like something that I would dream, <laughs> but it sounds it was like a real thing I read. Yeah, I've like, and if I'm dreaming about that, I'm depressed. But I was like, why? Why are they doing this? You overproduce so much. They're going to hate it because – You're going to hate you it. You can yeah. only sell that item. Like you, it's singular product you get back. And every single item, once it's worn, becomes unique in its own way, right? Whether it's been stretched out, whether it mm-hmm, has a little mm-hmm. pit stain or a smell or, you know, or I, who knows, whatever. It's just that it's product – it's piece by piece at that point. There's no mass – reselling, right? They can't just collect all the same item and be like, we're reselling all of this under one picture because each and every single one of those items is going to have something different to it for the most part, right? So like, it's a really time consuming thing to do. And you have to check all of your product then. Uh I mean, have fun Uh checking all the pockets to make sure there's not condoms and drugs because sometimes there are. (laughs) Um, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) You know, I've we found an, a fully loaded Olive Garden gift card <laughs> well, in a pair of pants at the thrift store. That's a good one. <laughs> I know, very lucky day. But that makes me think of ThreadUp. So ThreadUp is oh, no. ostensibly, <laughs> I know, I know, selling secondhand on a large scale. And if you ThreadUp is one of those companies that I get really angry mm-hmm. at because on one hand, I'm really stoked that they make secondhand easier, right? And more accessible. But on the other hand, they are so full of shit. Yep. You want to talk about blasting the world with all of these crazy figures and goals and growth targets. And what happens is it whips the whole industry into a frenzy. And so I've sat in meetings where it's like, how do we become thread up? And I've been (sighs) like, I don't think we want to be thread up. I don't think you want to get into that business. I'm going to say this, and I, I'm sure you would agree with me on this. I don't think ThreadUp is a sustainable business option. Nope. Not sustainable like the environment, although I also don't believe that because I know they're sending a ton of clothes to these so-called recycling companies. Absolutely. I don't think it's sustainable from a financial perspective no. because you have to pull every single garment out. You have to inspect it. You have to make sure it's not stained, doesn't smell, doesn't have anything in the pockets. And then – each one of these items has to be photographed, which is so expensive. Mm-hmm. Then someone has to write the copy for it, list it on the site. Mm-hmm. I mean, then it has to be put away in some sort of 
organizational way that will allow them to find it when someone buys it, that's not sustainable. As a person who has worked on large and you know large scale retail operations, I know how much it cost us to launch one product. But what was great about it is that maybe we spent $800 for every product launch, but we were going to sell $20,000 worth of inventory, right? right? right. You can't spend $800 on a product launch and sell one thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, sure. Unless you're like Banksy. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Unless you're taping a banana to the wall. But Yeah, that's different. (laughs) Right. Um, This H&M blouse is art, actually. The puke yes, stains, so you see those? $800. Those are yeah. abstract. <laughs> I would like $10,000 for this piece. Thank you. Yeah, that's the only way that works, right? And so I always am like, I think thread up is cooking, not cooking the books yeah. per se, but maybe overstating the situation because I don't. it doesn't make sense to me. I completely agree with you. Uh, <laughs> and I think that it is really – there's – I think there's like a theft ring. I mean, I have like all sorts of theories and conspiracies and (laughs) hear a lot of information, obviously, because I work with so many resellers who tell me everything through, you know, Instagram and stuff. But I'm I'm 100% convinced that there is like a full theft ring going on inside of ThreadUp for from their employees or whatever the heck's happening there in their warehouses because high-end product goes missing for people all the time. They will send in boxes Ah. and the Dolce & Gabbana dress will go missing. And they won't say anything to you about it, right? And then you have to reach out to them and they're like, oh, really? What did this look like? Hmm, Do you have a picture of it? Do you have proof? Do you have, you know, and it's like, also, how can they, they can't keep track of stuff that's coming to them. Like I just, and then getting sent back and it's, they can't keep track of singular items all over the place. And when they send stuff out and it gets returned, I know that the quality check is not happening, right? The quality check for something when it's getting returned is not happening in the same way that there's a quality check before they're listening it because they will accept returns and then people will get their stuff back because then it, you know, didn't sell because it got returned and it's destroyed. Like it's been worn, there's stains, it's broken, it's this, it's that. Like, so it's not, it's, it's it's done, right? It's not resellable anymore. So I just don't think that they have the same process for bringing in returns and then, you know, fixing that. And then they won't, again, they won't say anything to the people that are selling these things. And for something that, you know, really upsets me and annoys me being a reseller and knowing how hard so many resellers work to manually go out and find these things and prep them to even be sent into ThreadUp. So again, they're still doing the cleaning. They're still doing the steaming and and all of these things to like prep this stuff to go to them so they can potentially get a better payout because you have to pay a lot of money to ThreadUp to do what they're doing, which makes sense. I'm not against that. But then you have ThreadUp, like you said, putting out these massive reports where they're like, we as ThreadUp recycled X amounts or whatever. We as ThreadUp, I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Where are, where are all of these people who are out there getting you your product? Because you don't go get your own product. No. So why are you, you guys didn't just recycle this? Half of that work was done by other people, whether it's people with their own clothes. You know, so it's like, where's the we? Where's the us? Where's the, like, this is a collaborative effort? Because really it is. So- a while back, I became obsessed with trying to 
possibly put together an episode about ThreadUp. And I just couldn't find any information mm-hmm. out there that wasn't regurgitated from their press releases. Right. Like they are spending a lot of money on PR. I go to different websites about like sustainability and circular fashion and all kinds of stuff all the time. And they use ThreadUp's own in-house report as if it's a real document, right? (laughs) A real resource. And I kept just banging my head against all these corners over and over again. Just couldn't find any information about ThreadUp. And the best thing I I don't know, the most revealing side of it for me was when I went to Glassdoor and I started reading employee reviews. And it sounds like, I mean, it's the classic situation where there are people writing really negative reviews who are having an actual bad time working there. And then someone's like, hey, can you all go write some really good reviews right now? They need to be perfect. (laughs) Where people are like, I can't even think of anything that's bad about this job. You know, like Uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I saw recurring themes, and I will tell you, the people who work in the warehouse who are receiving and sorting those clothes, they hate working there. It's terrible. The hours are horrible. They switch your schedule up all the time. The word sweatshop came up in so many reviews. I found this one. The person said, "It's a ter-, and this is from February, so it's not that old, <laughs> terrible business model. We sell junk and pay pennies on the dollar to sellers. Crazy leadership in accounting and finance creates sweatshop conditions, expecting you to be available 24-7 and on the weekend with no notice. Yikes. Crappy processes. Things are a mess and will likely continue to be in the future. Unreasonable expectations. The finance leadership is unable to recalibrate expectations accordingly given the state of the finance systems and process. What this says to me is that they are, as as my dad likes to say, writing a check their ass cannot cash. As in, they're making these promises Ooh. in terms of, you know, product turnaround and sales and everything else that they can't hit because it's like, it's an impossible situation. That's why Poshmark is successful, right? Because Poshmark says, hey, we're going to give you a platform, all of you individual people will do the labor mm-hmm. of finding the product, of inspecting it, cleaning it, fixing it, and photographing it, and listing it. And we're just going to take a cut of that. Right. Yeah, well, exactly. they do the digital but labor. ThreadUp's like, we're going to do it all. And like, ThreadUp does that thing where you can <laughs> send them a box of your stuff. And now, you know that 95% of the stuff that comes in those boxes is not resellable because we know people just like to get rid of their shit. Like, they're trying to be a thrift store Mm -hmm. and Poshmark at the same time, and that's just not achievable to me. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's it's impossible to think that you're going to continue to, like, compete and and bust those numbers time and time again with your warehouse staff. I mean, I've – (laughs) <laughs> spent a lot of time working and sorting in warehouses. It is a very yeah. hard job. Like it is extremely physical. Like people I think don't realize how much, you know, carrying these bags and carrying boxes and moving product around that you have to do. There is a lot of dust. And I truthfully think that like spending too much time in those places is hazardous to your health because 
first of all, you don't know what's in all of the dust and stuff. And this is all like non-cleaned mm-hmm. clothing at that point when it's in these warehouses. Or if it was clean, you know, maybe it still can be. But there's a lot of stuff that's not clean, um, a lot of dirt and, and things like that. So I just don't think that if you're working in those conditions for very long periods of time and years, that it's going to be very good for their health. Uh, inhaling all of this every single day for, you know, eight to 10 hours a day. But you can only process so much clothing. Like no matter how good you are, like I'm really, really good, right? (laughs) But like it still takes me, I don't know, an hour to go through a thousand pounds of clothing or something, right? And then then I'm going to cap out at a certain point, no matter how good I am or how fast I can go because I still need to take breaks. I still need to, you know, look at the product and check it and make sure it's okay and decide whether or not it's a yes or a no or or whatever. And then you have people who are probably weren't resellers before they entered into this position that they have at ThreadUp in the warehouses. And they're having to then decipher like brands and this and that, and like learn all of that very quickly and and then go faster and faster and faster and have like mm-hmm. higher and higher quotas of how many items they can get through and how many things can be photographed and how many things can be entered and et cetera. I mean, I think that they've done – quite a feat as it is, you know, in order to house all of that product. Yeah. (laughs) But, but it gets lost a lot. I can tell you that. No doubt. It gets lost a lot. And I worked places where our warehouse was a shit show. Like logistics are really, really hard on a large scale like that. Then you couple it with already this really complex business idea of like, receiving all this random stuff that you don't like you can't even anticipate how many packages are going to arrive that day and having to open it and sort through it all and make sense of it it's just it's just too much but like you never hear thread up say we're facing challenges instead it's like oh my god we recycled nine gazillion clothes this year and resale is the future and then like i said it gasses up all the other people in fashion who are like we got to get on resale Quick, get Rezara rolling, you know? Uh, Yeah, well, you know what's funny, though, is that with ThreadUp, as soon as they started encouraging people to Mm -hmm. send in, like, more and more stuff, like, a lot of resellers then started sending stuff in. They're like, well, great. This can, you know, take a little bit off of my plate. If they're going to do some of this work, they can have some of the money, whatever. But, you know, it, it takes this off my plate, and maybe I can source more and send more in rather than, you know, doing all of the work myself. At a certain point, ThreadUp got really inundated with stuff and certain warehouses especially were extremely backed up. And they basically, out of nowhere, like started just changing things. And people were like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We can't get our stuff back now. Like, you know, you've changed the way we're allowed to change prices. Like everything happened without saying anything at all. There was no explanation. And so a lot of people on Instagram freaked out being like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like what's happening? They basically wrote back to us, you know, not publicly, but private DM saying that, oh, we're really sorry. We'll make sure to let you guys know of changes at least 30 days in advance from now on, blah, 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 blah. And some people are like high volume sellers on ThreadUp, you know, or, or they were, and they weren't even told. So then less than a month later out of nowhere, ThreadUp then basically sends out this letter to sellers or mm-hmm. resellers, right? And it almost reads like they just don't <laughs> want us there anymore. <laughs> They're like, 
no, you can't like uh, file these certain types of claims anymore. You can't whatever, because I mean, it made it just abundantly clear that they want all of the stuff from people who don't know what their stuff is worth. Right. And they're just like sending it into them. And then like, whatever they don't take, they're just like, Mm -hmm. oh, whatever, donate it. Right. But they're, I mean, they're donating it to ThreadUp. So, I mean, <laughs> ThreadUp can make money off of it. Um, and with resellers, right? I mean, we're sending stuff in. We're keeping track of what we have because we paid for our product and we know what it's worth. And so we're changing prices and we're trying to, you know, get investment back on our items and and whatnot. And when something goes missing, you know, we want to be paid for our item that they lost. It's very different for them from dealing with, like, private consumers, right? Who are just sending in their old clothes that they don't expect a lot back from. So I think they hit a certain wall where they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Resellers sending us stuff in is costing us a lot of money because we're actually having to pay up for our mistakes because they're like holding us accountable. And they pretty much effectively told us like, yeah, we don't really want you guys here. I was like, no problem. I mean, I'll take my business elsewhere. Uh, They've Personally, they've lost 39 <gasps> boxes that I've sent in. Three nine? Yeah, they lost them all in the same month. Jeez. Three nine. And each box had at least 100 to 120 pieces in each box. Um, and yeah, so they wanted to offer me $1,900. Wow. For it all. <laughs> so like 25 cents a piece or that 50 cents a piece wild. max. And I'm still fighting them on it, actually. I'm just like, no, that's a big no for me because they never that's found it. crazy to me. Like, where is that? It's there. I mean, they had it. They just – they probably had it for so long that it ended up going into their, that's like, I think. donated stuff or they just processed it and didn't, like, say anything or whatever. Or they just expected just, like – I think that they take advantage of people who mm-hmm. just send their stuff in, you know? And so I think maybe they were taking advantage of this situation and they didn't realize that they were taking would advantage of somebody of who <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. Right. Would keep track of their stuff. So I mean, effectively it's like fifty thousand dollars that would be owed to me. Yeah. See, once again, I know <laughs> yeah. it's a mess over there. Like I it's just because I know all the problems that I've run into at different jobs with our warehouse and then you couple it with this like really complicated unpredictable thing because at least as a buyer for a retailer I know that I wrote an order for a thousand units of that thing and when the inventory system's showing only 50 I have a very clear trail of evidence that a thousand items actually arrived right you can't do that right when it's just boxes of stuff arriving every day like there's just that gives me anxiety even thinking about how you could manage that in an orderly way. And if you go into the glass door reviews, time after time, former warehouse workers are saying, like, it's a mess. It's disorganized. We can't stay on top of stuff. There's no systems in place. It's just too much yeah, unique yeah. items. Like, it's, I, it blows my mind that they've and now they're taken stuck this with on, it because honestly. They've made some really bold statements. And I think – Like, resale (laughs) is hard. It's like we were saying, this is why you're paying someone to do it as a customer. Because if if you think it's hard to go out and thrift yourself and find clothes, imagine all the other stuff that ThreadUp has to deal with, you know? It's like, this is (laughs) a hard undertaking. And I think that 
while secondhand is the future what I and the present, what I love about it is that I also believe that small like micro businesses and just small business in general is also the future and it's how we make our lives more sustainable. Yeah. And what's exciting about secondhand is it allows all of these people to make a living, right? Yes. Yeah. Very low barrier of entry. Yeah. Like I mean, that's when eBay well. launched. We're going full circle here. eBay allowed people who would have mm-hmm. never been able to get a business loan to start their own business because the barrier to entry was like, you just need some yep. stuff to sell. You know, you don't need to build a website. You don't yep. need to like get a warehouse. You don't have to do anything. And it allowed all of these small businesses to develop, you know, and I think secondhand clothing and the mainstreamification of it is going to allow even more people to make a living doing this amazing, truly circular thing. And I think when we get big business involved in it, it doesn't work. It needs that individual touch. Yeah, and they can't get the profit margins that they want off singular pieces. It It doesn't work for their business models. And that's the thing that it's never going to scale up in the way that's going to really make sense for these huge businesses because the profit margin for them is not going to be there. You know, when you are this huge business and you have to pay employees and you have to pay, um, you know, obviously wages, but, you know, you have to pay taxes on that. You have to pay into social security. You have to pay workers comp. You have to pay for HR. You have to pay for invoicing. You have to pay for all of these things, right? When you have employees like that. When you have these small resellers who are just doing it themselves, those types of overheads Mm -hmm. go away. There's not a warehousing overhead for most of them because they store it in their spare bedroom or their garage or their house, wherever. So all of those other costs that are associated with it for these big businesses, they're not necessarily associated with the small sellers. And so it's much more manageable and the profit margins are much better when they're able to just do it themselves. absolutely. And the scale is the issue. Like, your average reseller can sell 100 items a month, 200, 500, maybe even 1,000. But for it to make sense financially to scale in the way that retailers need it to, to make it worthwhile, they need to sell millions of units each year, and they're all (sighs) one of a kind. I guess maybe the silver lining is if you are Zara and you've started ReZara – uh, you have – well, I mean, th- they have like an unlimited SKU count, so maybe they're not a good example. You know, pick someone smaller. Like, right. I don't – yeah, if Mara Hoffman Mara decided Hoffman. to get into the resale business, they did. There you go. They did. They, they have like, their own real sale. They don't have yeah, that many no. styles. Yeah. So it is more manageable. They're not going to have 1,000 different things arriving right. every day or every month. And they're – and they, in particular, are only accepting things even from 2019 better, Even better. Because yeah. if you're like one of these fast fashion brands who's launching 500 new products every week, you still have this like infinite amount of stuff to deal with. How do you manage that? Mm-hmm. <sighs> I don't know. I mean, I, I can tell you it's – it's know, manual. It's all manual. So it's not it's not something computers can do for you when you're sorting it out. You know, you can't you have to have a human being who's like checking these pieces of clothing for for what they are. You know, a computer can't smell yeah. smoke. 
Like, I don't know. There's just so many different facets to it that I think that's why it becomes so difficult to scale. Like even myself doing this, it's very difficult to scale. I still don't have somebody else working with me or whatever that can sort at the same rate that I can, or that knows the amount of brands that I know. And to then try and teach that knowledge to people. Yeah. I mean, I don't even, that's that's a lot. They have to be your apprentice for like years. Yeah. And even then it's like the time that it takes when somebody doesn't know all of those brands and they have to stop and say like, okay, I've learned X, Y, and Z. So I know that this is probably a a quality brand because it's made of silk, but then they need to look it up. And when every time that somebody has to stop to do that, even in a thrift store or whatever it may be, I mean, that's time where I'm sorting multiple more items, right? So it's like the productivity just goes down and down and down the less that, you know, you know about the products and brands and and styles and fabrics, et cetera. It's it's crazy. It's just – they don't know what they're getting into. Like you said, why aren't they bringing in professionals – in reselling, who would probably be, to, to be fair, would be like, you're crazy. Um, but instead, it's like, no, we know best. And we're going to be like ThreadUp because ThreadUp says it's all possible, but we know that it's not. Um, well, I still think it's that thing where they just, again, are just not like respecting the fact that this is a skill and a job. It's like, if you guys see that there's so much money in this, but then you want to say, oh, but these like little lowly resellers, like what can they do? It's like, would you think that we can't help or teach you anything about our own <laughs> industry own? that we built yeah. up? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like while well, you guys all shunned us and told us it was gross and like no until like the tides turned and now you want to then just come in and take all of our jobs and yeah. put them in factories, <laughs> like in warehouses and be like, oh, these res- whatever, whoever was doing this before, who cares? But like, we're going to, you know, monopolize this already. Yeah, it's definitely huge something I've been thinking about a lot. Like, as these larger corporations pop up doing it, like, I, I want to warn people that they shouldn't participate. That the things that are yeah. amazing about secondhand and reselling is that, you know, is that magic of the personal touch of the small business, of empowering all these people who would typically be outside of standard employment, whether it's because they have a family or because they have physical limitations, whatever. Maybe they just can't deal with working in an office or a factory. This gives people an opportunity to make a living and also do something great for the planet. And I don't want to see that crushed. Like we right. have to preserve Me it. Me neither. Like know? it's it's very much my community and I'm very, very protective over it and the the people in it because I do know so uh-huh. many of them so personally. So is often why I do like speak out about some of these companies and brands and things and what they're doing because I just feel like if it's going to be harmful to us and to them, I'm going to yeah. say something. Yeah, I mean it's definitely – like it's been on my mind. Like I've been – thinking like, when is the right time for me to start speaking up about this? I guess I need to see someone launch something first, you know? Um, but it's it's yeah. concerned me. Like, I want us to fight for and preserve the reselling community. Yeah, me too. It's just – And I appreciate that. It's the that. way forward, you know? So do you have any 
last words of wisdom or advice or just something you want everyone to know before we wrap up? Keep everything that you do small, you know, just if it doesn't need to travel far, it's even better if you're interested in sustainability, you know, purchase locally, purchase from resellers. They are 99% of the time, very small businesses. Um, even though I think some people think that my business is very big, <laughs> there's still only three of us that work for it. None of us make more than the median income in the United States. So I, it's not even close. <laughs> so we're, <laughs> we're just trying to save as many pieces of clothing as possible. And, you know, if you know somebody that's selling clothes and you wouldn't sell your clothes yourself, then give your clothes to them, yeah. you know, help support somebody else who's going to do the work for it. They're going to be super grateful and happy and, you know, they really do know what they're doing and they do a good job and they really love doing it. So yeah, I love that. That's all great advice. Yay. Well, thank you so much, Jade. (laughs) This was so fun. It was so good. Thank you again to Jade for taking the time to talk to me. I had so much fun and I can't wait until we get to hang out IRL someday because we have approximately 100 additional hours of stuff to talk about. And actually, Jade has been doing all this really interesting stuff in stories this week, talking about different sellers of these like boxes for resellers out there. It's complicated. I urge you to go check it out. But I have so many more questions about that for Jade. We're definitely going to have to get her to come back so that I can hear more about this because there's a lot of weird stuff going on out there. And she's been really great about, you know, pulling the curtain back on that kind of stuff. You can find her at fashionwithouttrashin.com or on Instagram as fashionwithouttrashin. Like I said, go give her a follow and watch her stories because I've learned so much from her. And a lot of what she talks about really demonstrates that no matter how great a business is in terms of its impact on the planet, it still might be scammy or shady or just plain old exploiting people. That's the classic, right? And I want to be clear that, yes, even the secondhand business has some bad actors working in it. Welcome to life on planet Earth. Speaking of bad actors in the realm of secondhand, let's start with what Jade and I talked about regarding thrift stores. I talked about this at much greater length way back in episode 26 with Christine, so go check that out. But I want to revisit it again, and I have some new information for you. So let's start with Goodwill, right? Goodwill is a nonprofit, and the conceit of Goodwill is that the company, the organization, I don't know what to call it here. It's a company, right? It uses the proceeds from sales to fund job training and assistance programs. Like, that's their charitable mission, I'm definitely going to refer to profit as I talk about them, even though they are a nonprofit. And when I say profit in terms of goodwill or any nonprofit, I'm referring to the money that's left over from selling, you know, the stuff we've donated to them for free and also deducting all of the overhead costs, right? So the people who work at the donation drop-off center, sorting, tagging, running the stores, the electric bills, rent, you name it. So less than one-eighth of Goodwill's profit, which I would say is about 12% of their profit that they make 
from selling all of that stuff that they 100% got for free from us is used on these job programs. What, so what I'm saying is here, a very small part of the profit. In fact, a 2016 investigative piece for Nonprofit Quarterly found some really disturbing stuff. For example, this is from this investigation. While Goodwill Omaha runs job training and assistant programs that serve thousands annually, nearly all of these activities have been funded by, guess what, guess what, everybody? Not the profits from selling our stuff, from government grants and contracts. That year, Goodwill Omaha made $4 million in profits from their thrift stores in eastern Nebraska and western Iowa. None of that was used to fund their job training and assistance programs. Even its signature program that employs disabled job trainees within its stores is primarily funded by school districts, not by those profits. And Jade and I talked about this, like, Where is the money going, right? We're going to talk about that. Don't worry. Unsurprisingly, if you're familiar with the way a lot of nonprofit budgets, a lot of charity budgets work, most of those profits are being consumed by so-called administrative overheads, specifically the pay to its top leaders. There's a massive disparity in employee pay within Goodwill. And that's probably not surprising to you, right? Because, you know, that's every large company in the United States right now. But you sort of expect better when you're talking about a nonprofit where you're literally donating your stuff so they can raise money to do good things. And I would say the pay disparity at Goodwill is pretty extreme. In 2016, the same year as that nonprofit quarterly investigation that I just cited, Goodwill gave out more than $57 million in bonuses to its executives. In 2005, Goodwill Industries of the Columbia Willamette, which is the Goodwill of Portland, Oregon, came under scrutiny due to executive compensation that the Oregon Attorney General's office concluded was, quote, unreasonable. So, okay, we already know that executives are being paid too much, right? We, that's like every company. But here's where it gets even dodgier, more upsetting. Goodwill has been criticized for using a provision of federal labor law to pay workers with disabilities less than the federal minimum wage. And this law has been around for 80 years. Under Section 14C of the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, Organizations can obtain a special wage certificate to pay workers with disabilities a commensurate wage based on performance evaluations. Of Goodwill's 105,000 employees, 7,300 are paid under the special wage certificate program, meaning they make less than minimum wage. If we go back to the Portland Goodwill, which remember, the Oregon Attorney General's office referred to the executive compensation there as unreasonable. In 2011, workers with disabilities worked more than 150,000 hours for an average hourly wage of $5.78. The lowest paid workers in the Columbia Willamette Goodwill 
made just $1.40 per hour. I want you to think about that. After taxes, if you worked 40 hours, that's not even a $50 paycheck for a week of work. According to Pennsylvania records from 2009, because lest you think this is just an Oregon problem, oh no, it's everywhere, some goodwill workers there earned as little as 22, 38, and 41, no, not dollars per hour, cents per hour. I can't even, I don't even want to multiply that by 40. It's bad, right? On top of that, employees are subject to really strict, unrealistic performance quotas, and their wages are docked if they're not fast enough. For example, if workers don't hang 100 items of clothing in 32 minutes, their pay gets docked. This is pay that is already below minimum wage. One of the articles I read back when I was preparing all of this information to talk with Christine about it for episode 26, I read stories of people who were, you know, making a dollar, two dollars, three dollars an hour by the time they took the bus to and from work and then totaled up their wages for that day, lost money by going to work and working a shift. In 2019, Goodwill brought in more than $6 billion in revenue, once again, by selling stuff that they got for free from us, yet they were more than ever aggressively fighting against an increase in the minimum wage. The increase in the minimum wage that still hasn't happened. Okay, so we've talked about the West Coast, we've talked about the East Coast, now let's talk about Goodwill in the Midwest. So... That same year, 2019, the year that Goodwill made $6 billion in revenue, Sharon Durbin, who was the president and CEO of Lincoln Goodwill, which is the Illinois branch of Goodwill, it runs 15 thrift stores in that state, she told workers employed under a vocational program for people with disabilities that they were losing their jobs. She cited the planned increase in the state minimum wage, which is slated to climb to $15 in 2025. She said they were losing their jobs, and it was because of this increase in the minimum wage that was coming. But to be clear here, as a nonprofit, her organization doesn't pay taxes, it collects state funding, and it has been awarded state contracts. And Goodwill pays disabled workers significantly less than the minimum wage, yet she was still cutting all these jobs. And she was kind of like, well, we've been doing them a favor by letting them work here, and we just can't afford to do it anymore because we're raising the minimum wage. Fortunately, in this particular situation, there was enough public outcry to force Durbin to backpedal and tell the workers, you know, hey, never mind, you still have a job. Like, the lieutenant governor of Illinois said that she should be ashamed of herself on Twitter. But Durbin had been campaigning against the raise in the minimum wage for quite a while, even before all this went down. And that's super interesting, ironic, pick your favorite adjective here, because in 2018, the year before this happened, Durbin was paid almost $165,000 in wages and another $6,000 in benefits. Her son, who also works for Goodwill in the executive leadership team, made $96,000. It seems that the company's aversion to a higher minimum wage is widespread. 
For example, let's go back to the West Coast, a Glassdoor review that I read, yes, I went deep into the Glassdoor reviews for Goodwill in search of information. This review said, quote, when the Washington state minimum wage was increased in 2020, management told employees that they would need to work harder in order to justify their current hours. Employees that left or were let go around this time were not replaced. I would say that the pre-pandemic years were filled with bad PR moments for Goodwill, and that would, that would be an understatement. In 2018, a change.org petition began making the rounds, it went viral, that was demanding the end of the legal loophole that allows Goodwill to pay its disabled workers pennies. After that petition went viral, the CEO of Goodwill, Jim Gibbons, who had been on the job for 10 years, he resigned to, quote, pursue new opportunities. He was being paid more than $700,000 per year, which is an amount of money I can't even imagine. Forget about billions. $700,000 a year? I can't. I can't. What's it like to have that much money? I have no idea. He quit. But there were still 23 regional CEOs for other branches of Goodwill that were being paid anywhere from $400,000 to $1.3 million each year. They stuck around. So just a lot of sketchy, unethical stuff going on with Goodwill. They're paying a lot of their workers barely anything, and the people at the top are making a lot of money. I mean, basically, how is Goodwill different than Amazon when you think about it that way, right? Supposedly... Goodwill has been making a shift toward being more equitable towards its employees, but I couldn't find any evidence of that anywhere. And disability activists have been pushing Goodwill on this since 2012. We're getting close to 10 years and no progress. I'll say, once again, I read all the Glassdoor reviews. Okay, not all of them because there were more than 6,000, but I was reading Goodwill Glassdoor reviews for a good hour. Overall, Goodwill seems to be a pretty miserable place to work for the retail employees and also the people who receive and sort your donations. They get inconsistent hours, low wages, raises of 18 cents came up more than a few times. That's a retail classic there for me. Uh, the fast fashion employer that I worked for was infamous for 15 and 25 cent raises. That means like if you work 40 hours in a week, you might make six extra dollars that week, just in case you were wondering. Another Glassdoor review said, and this one really bums me out, quote, they had policy against being friends with coworkers outside of work. No recognizing birthdays, no potlucks, and no get-togethers of any kind. That's just kind of shitty, right? Who wants to work there? So you're probably wondering, what should you do about Goodwill? Should you shop there? Should you donate there? <sighs> well, like all things we discuss here, there's no clear black and white answer. Because, of course, in an ideal world, none of us would set foot in or near Goodwill again until they got their act together and stopped exploiting their workers. But... Sometimes that's the only option for a donation, and I don't want you to throw your stuff in the trash. I would much rather you give it to the Goodwill. At least if it goes to Goodwill, it has a better chance of being used by someone else or being shredded and used for industrial purposes. Meanwhile, if you throw your unwanted stuff in the trash, well, it's, it's trash. That's it. It's got a one-way ticket to the landfill or the incinerator, and that's not what I want you to do. 
I would say if you have the option of donating your stuff somewhere else whose values align more with yours, then skip Goodwill. One suggestion I have for you is offering it to your local buy nothing group first. Clothes go extra fast there. And you're guaranteed that someone else is going to wear your clothes again and be stoked about it. You can find your local Buy Nothing group at buynothingproject.org. And don't worry, I'm going to share that link in the show notes. But I see clothes arrive and get swooped up so fast there. And it makes me so happy to see that happen. In terms of shopping at Goodwill, I know that's the other question you had for me. I want you to shop secondhand first. And depending on where you live what you're looking for, the size you wear, all of that, Goodwill can be the best option because so much stuff moves through there. Out here in Lancaster County, I actually have a plethora of other thrift options, so I skip the Goodwill altogether unless I'm absolutely desperate to find something specific. You might not have that luxury. Ultimately, where you choose to donate and shop is a personal decision. But at least knowing the facts makes that decision easier to make. Or at least I hope it does. (laughs) Okay, now let's briefly tackle the subject of for-profit thrift stores. I went into this in a lot of detail back in episode 26, so I don't want to bore you. I'm just going to touch on this. I bet you were thinking that all thrift stores were nonprofit. I'm going to be honest, until I started working for Clothes Horse, I thought all thrift stores were nonprofits. Well, here's some real talk. There is so much profit in selling secondhand stuff, and not just via online platforms like Poshmark and ThreadUp. According to research by Investigate West, which is a nonprofit investigative journalism newsroom located in Seattle, Washington, There are at least 500 for-profit thrift stores advertising some benefit to charity operating here in the United States and Canada. And these are owned by about 20 regional or national branded chains. Value Village slash Savers is the largest of these companies with 295 stores. And they are constantly in trouble with the law over their sketchy practices. This company rakes in about a billion dollars per year in revenue, but donates very little to actual charity. For example, in 2001, Savers gave Big Brothers and Big Sisters of East Bay, which is in Oakland, 0.02% of the revenue. What does that mean? That means two cents for every $100 of products sold. That's 20 cents for every $1,000 worth of product that sells. That means in order to make $1, $5,000 worth of product have to sell. It's just just so little money going to Big Brothers Big Sisters, right? That same year, 2001, Hope Rehabilitation Services in Santa Clara, also in California, received 0.87% of savers revenue. So that's 87 cents for every $100 worth of product sold. Coming in better than Big Brothers Big Sisters, but like not that much. You know what I mean? Like it's just not that much money. 
So because of this, the company is constantly getting into trouble with the law. It settled a consumer protection suit in the state of Minnesota. It's been fighting another consumer protection lawsuit in Washington state. The issue at hand is that Value Village misleads its customers into thinking that one, the company is nonprofit, and two, a big portion of sales are going to charity, neither of which are true, right? The Better Business Bureau has even flagged the company, rating it with a C minus because of the government actions and consumer complaints. You're asking again, should you donate and shop at these for-profit thrift stores? It goes back to this idea of, you guessed it, do you have better options for donations? Do you have better options for secondhand shopping? If yes, then for sure, take your donations and your money elsewhere. And if you don't, then donate and shop there. Just know that while you're not making much of an impact on a nonprofit organization by shopping there, you are making a more sustainable and ethical choice by shopping secondhand. And that's also great. It's just good to know, right? To know what's really going on. And I'm going to be honest, I'm not mad about thrift stores being for profit. In fact, I'm totally fine with that. But I don't like that some of them are misleading their customers. So if you're wondering if your favorite thrift store is secretly for profit, ask them. And I'm also going to link to this Investigation West article because it addresses most of the largest for profit thrift chains like Red, White and Blue, Thrift Town and America's Thrift Stores. But there are a bunch more on the list too. I didn't think that any of those were for profit either. I'm telling you, I learned this stuff alongside of you. <laughs> anyway, this is a great transition into talking about Thread Up because Investigation West also mentions some misgivings with that company. I'm just going to go ahead and quote this article straight up here. The Better Business Bureau rates the company with an A, but has posted some cautionary reviews regarding donations. The Better Business Bureau cautions customers, some of whom have complained about difficulty receiving refunds and lower than expected payouts, to read the fine print in the company's terms of use. Don't worry, we're going to get to that. It points out that ThreadUp will automatically recycle your items if you fail to sign up for their return assurance policy, which, by the way, you have to pay for as a customer to get your stuff back. So I went on Reddit and I went on an internet review odyssey regarding ThreadUp and customer experiences, particularly this idea of missing items or not getting paid or being paid a tiny, tiny amount. And I'm here to tell you that the internet is saying all of this happens a lot. From coach purses to free people blouses, people are finding the ThreadUp is straight up losing their stuff, especially nicer stuff in luxury brands or they're waiting six months to get $4. I found stories about both of these things everywhere I looked. There's a lot of concern out there that employees are taking these items. And to be fair, I also read hundreds of glass door reviews for ThreadUp as part of my research. And a lot of warehouse workers say that it's a brutal job. It's hard and stressful. And I don't think they have time to take this stuff. I could see that morale would be really low and might lead to people taking these items. There's also a lot of concern that ThreadUp is secretly holding on to these items to sell to other companies or to customers via other services that they offer. So I think this is a good time to tell you that ThreadUp 
always makes money off of your unwanted clothing, even if they never sell it on the site. Meaning even if they reject it and you don't want it back, they still make money off of it. It's kind of a surprise to me too. Once again, I'm learning all this stuff alongside of you. So I'm reading directly from their website. This is the fine print that the Better Business Bureau was calling out. And this is from the selling section. If return assurance is not selected, any unaccepted items will immediately become property of ThreadUp and will not be returned. ThreadUp reserves the right to sell unaccepted items to third-party textile recyclers, put a pin in that, or through its other proprietary commercial channels like rescue boxes without any obligation to compensate you for such unaccepted items. Okay, well, that's a mouthful. Let's break it down. I'm just going to start by saying that third-party textile recyclers doesn't mean, you know, magically turning these garments into new clothes. Just as Jade said, that doesn't really exist, right? These people are, like, moving stuff around. It's logistics. It's reselling. This means a variety of things, from selling them off by the box or pallet to other resellers, to shredding them up and using them for industrial products, to shipping them overseas to sellers there. And ThreadUp is rejecting most of the stuff it receives. The company will tell you itself, it only accepts about 40% of the stuff customers send in. 40%, that's less than half. In 2020, ThreadUp made $128 million in profit. How'd they do that? Well, partially by selling 4 million garments. Okay, so let's do some math here. I'm gonna get the calculator out which by the way is a graphing calculator that I thrifted for two bucks and I'm very excited about it. Couldn't afford this calculator in high school. Now it's mine. You can live your dreams. (laughs) Anyway, doing the calculations here, that means that ThreadUp received in 2020 alone 10 million garments from its customers. Four million were sold and six million went to these third-party textile recyclers or other programs that they have. Just going to say this again, ThreadUp is making money off of everything they don't pay you for. And that, that my friend, is how they make $128 million in profit off of selling 4 million garments that are secondhand after spending the money to steam, photograph, and list all of them. That's how they make all that money. By making money off of everything they receive. Should that bother you? It's up to you. It's good to know that your unwanted clothes aren't heading to the landfill, right? And sending them to ThreadUp is a lot easier than selling them yourself on Poshmark. As we're talking about this, I'm realizing that more people need to make money selling other people's clothes on Poshmark as a business, just like people did with eBay and the odds. Like literally you would go to like an eBay store, drop off all your stuff, and someone else would sell it for you on eBay and give you a percentage of it easy. Who's going to do this on Poshmark? Let's get this going now. Or Depop, wherever. Let's get it going. But back to ThreadUp. So ThreadUp also offers you the option to donate your clean out bag to a charity of your choice. This means you send it to ThreadUp, right? ThreadUp doesn't actually send that bag of stuff to your favorite charity. They don't like forward it on. Instead, ThreadUp pays the charity $5 for that bag of stuff, and then they use that bag of stuff in any way they want. 
They can either sell the contents of that bag to customers via their site, or they can sell it to these third-party textile recyclers. So to be clear here, should you opt to donate your bag of clothes, ThreadUp will make a profit off of that donation, and the charity will make $5. Again, I ask, should that bother you? It's up to you. It feels a little sketchy to me, and I don't like it. Furthermore, Chris Kuwich of the Minnesota-based Charities Review Council says that it would be much more beneficial to donate that bag of stuff directly to your favorite nonprofit, charity, or thrift store. They will get much more than $5 of value out of it. But back to all the stuff that ThreadUp is losing. What do I think is happening there? I think a major part of it is chaos in the warehouses. Based on all the creeping that I did on Glassdoor, I can safely say that the turnover in the warehouses is very high. Stuff is definitely falling through the cracks with all of that chaos. My experience as a buyer with a variety of e-commerce brands of all sizes has shown me that time and time again, stuff gets lost in warehouses. And I mean a lot of stuff no matter how organized that warehouse may seem externally. For example, I had a job where the warehouse, quote, found a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of inventory basically shoved into a corner of the warehouse. It was a lot of returns, damages, and just random units that people were finding that just got thrown over there over a period of time. I worked another place where racks and racks and racks and racks, many, many racks of damaged clothing was literally being hidden by the manager of the warehouse so that none of us from the corporate office would know that they'd been ignoring it. I mean, we're talking thousands of garments right there. At another job, we showed up at the warehouse to help out. And guess what? We discovered months of returns from customers had just been shoved into some shelves in the back rather than being put away for customers to buy. No one wanted to do the work. There just wasn't enough time. Because you know what? Warehouses are hard. It's hard work. The pay sucks. And there's no reason for workers to worry about stuff getting lost or missed. It's just, it's above their pay grade, you know? If someone was lurking behind me, expecting me to process 100 garments per hour and clock out every time I had to pee, I wouldn't care if people's stuff got lost either. So, should you stop shopping at ThreadUp? I think from the customer side, it's a great way to have access to a lot of secondhand clothing in one foul swoop. It seems like a good place to find work clothes, for example. If shopping at ThreadUp works for you, keep doing it. I would rather you buy secondhand clothes from ThreadUp than place a big order at Zara. When it comes to what you do with your unwanted clothing, I would ask yourself, what is most important to you? Is it convenience, charity, making some money off those clothes, it's up to you. I'm always going to recommend supporting a smaller reseller or charity over the big corporate guys. Like when you buy something from someone on Poshmark or Depop or Mercari or Vinted or eBay, all those places, it benefits a small business. When you buy something from ThreadUp, it benefits ThreadUp. And it's just up to what you wanna do and what you need and where you can find it. But what I will say is non-negotiable is getting clothes back on another person's body. So give your clothes to thread up if that's what works for you. Don't throw them in the trash. Give them to Goodwill if that's what works best for you. 
don't put them in the trash. Give them to Value Village. If that's what works for you, don't put your clothes in the trash. The fashion industry produces and sells somewhere between 80 billion and 150 billion garments each year globally. Here in the U.S., we buy about 20 billion brand new garments each year. No, those aren't individual socks either, okay? We know, based on other conversations we've had here on the show, that 85% of those clothes are currently heading to the landfill when we're done with them, often within the same year they're made, which is so gross, so depressing, so bad for our planet, and it completely devalues all of the work, energy, water, and raw materials that were used to make those clothes. That stuff is all very valuable. Imagine with me a better world. Okay, well, that's, that's a big one. Imagine if half of the clothing Americans bought each year was secondhand. Half of that 20 billion garments. So now it was 10 billion garments saved from the landfill simultaneously 10 billion less garments being bought new in the first place. And this is a big win right there. That's not even 100%. That's half. You know what? I would be happy with a quarter, actually. Then we're at 5 billion. That's still, much like $700,000 a year in pay, a number that I can't visualize. It feels good, right? Billions upon billions of yards of fabric would be never made, never used. So much water, so much energy, saved, saved, saved. So many less workers exploited all in the name of the fastest, cheapest clothes. That's a pretty happy story, isn't it? That's not 100% of all of our clothes being secondhand. That's just half. Like I said, I'd be, I'd be happy with a quarter. I know that you and me, we can't all buy everything secondhand all the time. Sometimes you need a bra from Target. Sometimes you need some jeans from Old Navy. I get it. Sometimes you can't find what you need. You don't have the time. You can't find your size. I super get it. But shifting as much of our shopping into secondhand as possible does have an impact if lots of us are doing it. And the more of us that are doing it, the more small businesses can pop up to help us find the things that are harder to find, to save way more stuff from the landfills, to mend and clean things that places like ThreadUp are going to reject, then we're going to get it all back on someone's body. Once again, let's think about half of the clothing bought here in the U.S. each year being secondhand, 10 billion garments each year. I know for some of us, shopping secondhand is second nature, but it's not for others. I want us to share our knowledge, our expertise, our experience here. I want to destigmatize secondhand clothing. And I'm brainstorming new ways to do all of that. So if you are an expert, or if you are an expert on a certain area of secondhand shopping and you want to share your knowledge with the community, please reach out to me. I have a few ideas for how we can get that information out there that include Instagram lives guesting on the podcast, even an Instagram takeover. Your area of expertise can be in clothing, housewares, electronics, books, art supplies, whatever. Let's talk about it. And let's get more people on team secondhand first. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse, written, researched, and edited by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you enjoyed yourself, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you would like to support my work on Close Horse, please consider becoming a patron. I would love that. You can find out more at patreon.com slash podcast, or you can make a one-time contribution via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Please don't forget to check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. We just finished a little mini-series, meaning a two-parter, on trolls. It was really fun. It was dark. It was fun. We have some really fun episodes coming up. I'll link to The Department in the show notes. And thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White, my other half, for our music and audio support. Bye. (laughs) 